and welcome to a special crossover episode of This Is Modern Rock. I'm Will Westerkow, and today I am joined by Joseph and Rob, the hosts of Deep Dives and Deep Cuts, the history of punk, post-punk, and new wave, 1976 to 1986. Hi guys! Well, look at that—you got it perfect. Yes. <laughs> hey there. <laughs> That's that first first try, right? Right out of the bat box. Congrats yeah. on that. So nice to be here to be talking to you. You know, you have been a guest on our show. We first connected over our love for the Buzzcocks. That's you right. came on and was very generous with your time and information as knowledge as far as Buzzcocks, which I think you said is one of your very favorite punk bands. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to say thanks for having us on for the reason of we're kind of sharing something here we, as listeners of great music, but also we don't cover the same music that you do. And it's kind of nice to be heading into that realm a little bit and talking about music that we wouldn't normally cover on our show. So thanks for having us. Right, yeah. And for those of you who are new to Deep Dives and Deep Cuts, that show, as I said, covers 1976 to 1986. This is Modern Rock, picks up at the tail end of 1988. So there's a little gap between our two shows. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be bridging the gap between punk slash new wave and alternative slash modern rock 1987 to 1988. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the parameters we came up with were pretty arbitrary, but we are going to feature bands that release their first album or EP or single right in 87, 88. And each one of us have picked two bands that we want to kind of feature. Yeah. First of all, I want to thank both of you because we have a great playlist. You guys, (laughs) I was so happy when I saw the songs that everybody picked, started listening to the playlist, really a wide range. It was so much going on in like 1987, 1988. I hadn't really thought about it, but these were a couple of very pivotal years. I totally agree. This playlist is exciting and all over the place in terms of the type of music we're going to be listening to. Yeah. So we decided, I mean, right off the bat, that any conversation about the switch over from original punk to like modern rock has to start with the Pixies, right? Mm -hmm. I think all three of us are huge fans. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about the Pixies for a little bit. The core group is Black Francis, Joey Santiago, David Lovering, and Kim Deal. They were together originally from 1987 to 1992, at which point they had released four LPs and one EP. They broke up in 1992, they reunited in 2003, they released albums in 2014, 2016, 2019, and I just discovered this afternoon, they have a new album that's just about to come out, September of this year. And the top Spotify songs are Where Is My Mind, Here Comes Your Man, Hey, Debaser, and all I think about you now, 
Is anyone familiar with that last song? No, that, I'm surprised. Not at all. <laughs> it, it must be one of their newer songs. So three of those songs are off of Doolittle, which is widely regarded probably as their best album. I like them all. I mean, of their original output. I find that interesting. So I just want to say that since we got the playlist together, I think I've listened to Cactus like 10 times. <laughs> It should and, be uh, getting up there towards number one by now. Cactus is a song that's off Surfer Rosa, their first album, and it always has been a favorite tune of mine. There's just something about it. I want to say it's a bit kinky because it's about a guy who, like, he's in prison and he wants his wife to wear some clothing and send him to him so he could smell her. But <laughs> but I, I think it's a great tune. Yeah. Has anybody really been paying attention to the Pixies since they reformed? I have, yes. There's definitely songs that I like quite a bit but nothing that's hit me so hard that i thought wow this holds up right there along with my favorite songs from their first run i love all of their original albums i don't think there's a dog in the bunch how are the two of you feeling i mean i they, they had an amazing run i thought do either of you like prefer a certain phase of their output to another one I do. I absolutely love Come On Pilgrim, Surfer Rosa, and Doolittle. I really like Bossa Nova, and I'm just kind of so-so on Tremblemond. I think I'm bigger on their earliest stuff. First three albums or so. Yeah, I I think a lot of people are like that as well, Mm -hmm. but I really like it all. I think it's great. So... As we continue through, we will, from time to time, stop and talk a little bit more Pixies. They cast the largest shadow over that bridge between the old school punk and the newer stuff. Obviously, so much of the stuff that's going to come down through the early to mid-90s, so many of those bands directly influenced by the Pixies. I guess the most famous is Nirvana, of course. Mm-hmm. Are we ready to start just diving into our bands? What was the first band that you picked, Will? Well, I'd like to talk about a band called the Pastels, or perhaps the Pastels, as I heard them called in some interviews I listened to. The Pastels are Stephen McRobbie, a.k.a. Stephen Pastel, Brian Taylor, Martin Hayward, and Bernice Simpson from Glasgow, Scotland, and they were formed in 1981. And they kind of started off slow because they didn't really put out their first LP until 1987, but they did scatter a few singles along the way. One of the the big reasons I wanted to talk about this band is because they're often associated with what's termed the C86 scene. 
Are you guys familiar with C86 at all? No, not at all. I am, but I wouldn't have been able to define it. It's It's got a, a certain sound like what I've always thought of as like slop rock, <laughs> uh, like lo-fi, like the 90s stuff, like pavement is was sort of the ones who brought that into the spotlight. I've never heard the term slop rock before, but <laughs> the terms I often read associated with C86 are shambling and twee, but... Hmm. Um, the scene, basically, what it is, is NME, they released like a mail order cassette called the mm-hmm. C86 cassette. And it was basically a showcase of a bunch of up and coming bands. This was 1986, hence the number. The pastels were featured on that along with a lot of other similar-ish type bands. And this cassette proved so influential that it spawned all kinds of copycats and influence bands all the way to current day. The pastels themselves, they didn't really want to be associated with this. They didn't like being lumped in with twee or shambling groups, and and they didn't really think that they fit that well. But that being said, if you listen to their early singles, some of it sounds pretty rough. Like, (laughs) it it is kind of (laughs) slop rock. You know, there's a very distinct sort of intentional, atonal delivery of the vocals it's not really like out of tune so much as just sort of like kind of expressionless, mm-hmm. which sometimes works for me and sometimes doesn't. But with the pastels, it does. And I am looking at the playlist for the C86 compilation. And you know what? I had this at one point. <laughs> I'm realizing that that's why it's ringing a bell. Wow. So the primitives started out Stump, the Soup Dragons, Early Primal Screen, the Mighty Lemon Drops. Yeah, and I I also wanted to bring up the pastels because I think they also helped to produce some early albums by some of these other bands. I know they produced some early stuff for the Vaselines, and I think they might have helped produce some early Primal Scream as well. But um, why don't we listen to a song? We're going to hear something off of their first LP, Catching Up with the Pastels from 1987. And we're going to hear a song called Crawl Babies. Well, as I mentioned, I was so excited when I saw that this was your choice because it didn't even occur to me. And you picked your band before you picked your songs. So while I was waiting to see what your songs were, I just kept going, please pick Truck Train Tractor. Please pick Truck Train <laughs> Tractor. Because that was, it was like the first song that I had ever heard from them, which I believe was off of Catching Up With The Pastels on some sort of a compilation. Super duper catchy 
but you didn't pick it, so... Well, you know, I almost did. I, <laughs> I was so close, and I, I was debating between Truck Train Tractor and Crawl Babies, and I felt like Crawl Babies was a little bit more representative of their sound yeah, during yeah, that era, mm-hmm. so yeah. that's why I went with that one. If, yeah, yeah. So going back to the idea of the C86 sound, Crawl Babies fits into that sound exactly how now? I mean, somebody mentioned, I think, that they didn't play their instruments too well, but they sound, I mean, suitable. (laughs) They have sort of a loose feel to it, Uh right? And he's not... casual. Yeah, and he's not, like, singing notes so much as just sort of, like, muttering, singing, talking Mm -hmm. sort of a thing that I think... Sounds pretty normal to us now, yeah. but back then <laughs> that was still pretty fresh and new. Yeah. And I keep going back to Pavement because they're the ones who seem to get the balance exactly right for kind of more of a mainstream audience. Well, the pastels somehow totally escaped me back then, and this is the first time I've listened to them. So I dig them, man. Thanks for bringing them to the table. Remind me again, Will, they are from Scotland? Yes. Yeah. I don't think they ever had much of a presence here in the U.S. I don't think so either, which is unfortunate. I, I actually watched an interview from the early 90s where the, someone was asking them about that, how like all of their peers from Scotland that they came up with and helped promote and helped produce, they managed to become more successful. And um, Stephen Pastel basically said, well, that wasn't really necessarily what we were trying to do. And we had other things on our mind and we weren't touring when we should have been touring. And this actually fits in really perfectly, I think, with the whole C86 movement and the idea of like, twee music. At some point, he took a little break from music to get his master's degree in librarianship. Uh, so. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is pretty twee. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, I'd say that is twee as can be. We're going to hear one more song from the Pastels. This one is from their second album, which was called Sittin' Pretty. And on this song we're about to hear, which is called Nothing To Be Done, there's a new singer coming in to help out. Her name's Annabelle Wright. Hold it for a second, let me dump this stupid pride. I'm ready for you, sweetheart, now my mind is open wide. Should I make it count your concentration? I love this song, and I think this is the first time that I've heard a duet by the Pastels. Listening to him sing, I wouldn't necessarily go, ooh, I gotta hear him in a duet, but it's really working. (laughs) In fact, man, they write really poppy songs. They just don't execute them in a traditionally like slick, poppy way. Rob, you said that you were not familiar with the pastels before. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah I, I hadn't heard them at all until recently. 
And one thing I actually really like about them, and I and I listen to quite a bit of their music, is that they kind of go through phases. And I kind of liked listening to the different phases of the band, you know, yeah, their evolution. I'm with you. I really like this album that we just listened to, or this song we just listened to. I like the entire album. But yeah, pretty good stuff. Wow. So they really put out eight LPs? That's uh, crazy. I, I had no idea. Yeah, and they're still a band. Okay, any last thoughts about the pastels before we move on? I'll just throw this out there. Uh, maybe this doesn't mean much because Kurt Cobain apparently had many, many favorite bands. But, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, I have heard that the pastels were one of his favorite bands. Yeah, he was a, a pretty carnivorous guy when it came to different styles of music. Yep. So before we move on to the first band that I want to talk about tonight, I thought we could just have a quick conversation about some pivotal bands that kind of help that bridge between the punk new wave movement and the modern rock alternative rock movement. So let's start with some of the sort of the godfathers. This is a totally arbitrary name that I came up with. These are artists that started out in the punk new wave movement and just really successfully transitioned into the 90s and kind of like help move the progression of where the music was going in different ways. First, let's talk about U2, R.E.M., Morrissey, and The Replacements. Those were like the four that popped into my brain as far as like the ones that really most successfully transitioned from the one era to the other. Everyone's familiar with these bands, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. My collection of albums by those four bands is probably bigger than many people's entire CD collections or whatever. You two, I mean, Joshua Tree, that was 86, 87. Is that right? I was going to say seven. Yeah. I was still in high school. So at that point, they became like a phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And they very, very successfully transitioned into the 90s. I feel like with most bands, when they release an album that just becomes a phenomenon, it like breaks out of the stratosphere and like launches them into superstardom. After that album they tend to not really be on the vanguard anymore. I feel comfortable saying that that's true with you too. But what they were brilliant at was kind of chasing the trends. I don't know that they really started many trends after Joshua Tree, but they were brilliant at just sort of like doing what David Bowie did in the 70s and 80s where they just sort of like were right on top of the new trend and just kind of transitioned into that and absorbed it and commercially did very very well at that well they Um, they continued doing it almost until not recent history but i mean they put their music on our phones you know (laughs) so they know the trends and they they jumped with it man that's but i think rem they didn't have that moment until Losing My Religion. What is the name of the album that's on? Um, out of Time. Out of Time, right? But I remember when they released Document. That was 80, 
788. That was a huge album as far as the impact that it had on bands coming up. You know, in 85, 86, new wave, post-punk, it was all feeling pretty stale. And then Document came out and it was sort of like a revelation about, oh, this is where the cool music is heading you know that and the pixies were starting to release stuff about that time Mm -hmm. um so i think that when you have a conversation about that transition rem is sort of pivotal in that yeah well and you know what's funny about that is i've heard people say pretty much the same thing you just said except if they're a little older than you then they say that about chronic town or murmur and if they're a little, <laughs> if they're a little younger than you they say it about you know green or automatic for the people or something i, I feel like arium was doing that over and over and over again up through maybe monster mm-hmm. well i don't remember rem ever like charting until this one goes out to the one I love. So I think that they were a very buzzy band before that. But Document was where they started having some real commercial success, Mm -hmm, which, you know, kind of makes all the difference in the world. (laughs) I guess we also have to talk about Morrissey. You know, he very successfully transitioned from the Smiths to his solo career. I mean, how many times does Morrissey show up on your show, you know, on the modern rock charts? Many times. Yeah. And in <laughs> fact, I, I just had to uh, cut one of his songs. He, he got to number two, I think, with We Hate It When Our Friends Become Successful. And I, I was like, I want to put it on the show, but we've heard Morrissey so much lately. We're going to give something else a shot. So, And Will, you added to this list the replacements. Yeah. I mean, I think they fit in great with this group you know they did come from a a punk origin Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. um they matured and went on to become extremely influential with the college rock scene yeah i i had the last couple of albums that they released i i think the last one that they released was really kind of just a solo album that they Mm -hmm. called the replacements but the one before that i'm trying to remember the name of it don't tell a soul yeah, that actually had some commercial success. I remember that. Not punk at all. Very lush, sweet, moody album with some great songwriting. There were some good songs on that, but also a lot of old school replacement fans were very disappointed by the time they got to that album. Well, yeah, because it wasn't really punk at all. It was a. Yeah. A guy ma- maturing into something else. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of sad to say this, but I didn't know much about the replacements until after Paul Westerberg was doing solo stuff. And then mm-hmm. I went back and listened to them and uh, quite enjoy them. But yeah, I, I was kind of embarrassed that I missed, you know, <laughs> the entire run of the replacements. On our show, we're going to get to talk about the replacements a lot. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, for sure. Yeah, I got to talk about a couple songs on the tail end of their career, and I'm in 1992 right now. So I, Paul Westerberg is on the singles soundtrack with a yeah. couple songs. Yeah, all over it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and that was a pretty big deal. So gonna be excited to talk about that pretty soon. Okay, let's move on to the Sugar Cubes. The Sugar Cubes is the first band that I chose 
to talk about. They are the new version of the B-52s. Got the same cool dynamics, so much fun. Energy level is super high. The way that the female vocals are managed and the male vocals are managed seem very parallel to how the B-52s typically manage their vocals. You know, it sounds very different. You would never confuse the two bands, but really sort of like the B-52s for the 90s have always loved the Sugar Cubes. Of course, the most famous member of the Sugar Cubes is Bjork, who went on mm-hmm. to become sort of an alternative rock darling of the 90s. I mean, she was her own subgenre of music just by herself. Sugar Cubes, of course, were from Iceland. And I am not going to even try and say their last names. I'm going to just butcher their first names, but I'm going to give it a go. So we've got Bjork, Por, Braki, Inair, Sigtrigur, and Marguerite. <laughs> you nailed it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they were together for a pretty short time, 1986 to 1992. And I guess they got back together in 2006 for a moment. I don't think they released anything new at that point, but they probably just toured for a little bit. That was news to me. Only put out three studio albums. The top Spotify songs for Sugar Cubes are Birthday by far, and that was the first Sugar Cube song I ever heard. Hit is the second most popular. Deuce, Cold Sweat, and Leash Called Love. Three of those songs off of their first album, two of the songs after the third album. Second album doesn't really get any love. What's your relationship with the Sugar Cubes? For me, it's very vague. I mean, I've, I've heard them here or there. I've got a friend who I'm still very good friends with that we were pretty tight in high school. And he was a big Sugar Cubes fan. So I pretty much mostly listened to it through osmosis. I mean, I heard it just being around him. I find it fun and interesting that you say that they are the B-52's replacements, because for some reason, I just wouldn't have thought of that. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. You know, I never thought of that either, but when you said it, it suddenly made sense. It does um, make sense, yeah. I I feel like it makes me like them more, (laughs) thinking of them that way, yeah. Before I listened to them, I had just heard about them, and people talked about how cool they were. And when I first heard a song of theirs, I thought, This is not what I was expecting, and this is not my idea of what is cool. I'm mostly speaking about the male talk singing Mm -hmm. vocals. Uh, It just sounded so goofy to me. And I I assumed that it was maybe something lost in translation. But uh, if I think about it more in terms of like an Icelandic Fred Schneider, it's more enjoyable. (laughs) So at the time when their first album came out, it felt so new and exciting. So the first song that I want to feature off of that first album is a song called Sick for Toys. Oh, toys. She's got a 
I know that the sugar cubes make a number of appearances on the modern rock charts, right? Right. Did birthday make it to the modern rock charts? Their four charting songs were Motor Crash, Regina, uh-huh. Hit, and Walkabout. Uh-huh. That's interesting because Birthday is the first song that I ever heard, and it is by far the most streamed on Spotify. <laughs> so the second song uh, that I chose to feature tonight is off of their third album. As I mentioned, not a big fan of their second album, where they're they're really kind of focusing more on the groove thing. And to illustrate that, the song that I picked is called Chihuahua, which is basically an instrumental. I mean, there are voices, you hear voices all over the place, but they're treating their voices almost like in a rhythmic instrument and just kind of encapsulates the joy of this album. It's not in the zaniness of the vocals and the male vocals playing off the female vocals or the super duper high energy. It's much more like just a funky little groove, which I really like a lot. So we've got some other notable bands and godfathers that we should talk about. Peter Murphy is a name that's popped up recently. Nick Cave, Sonic Youth. Personally, I'm a huge fan of Nick Cave. And and I like Sonic Youth. I haven't heard a whole lot of Peter Murphy. Well, now, wait a minute, Rob. <laughs> Are you not putting together Peter Murphy with Bauhaus? No, I am. I am. Oh, I'm, oh, I'm, oh you're, you're I'm joking. making a joke. Oh. I am. <laughs> I was, you were really throwing no. me for a loop there, Rob. Yeah, no, I'm messing with you. No, Bauhaus is, as you know, Bauhaus is one of my very favorite bands. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I'm a big fan of all three of these mm. people I just mentioned. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Will, Peter Murphy shows up on the modern rock charts a lot, right? Yeah, quite a few times. And in fact, I just talked about him this last episode. Yeah, so I like Bauhaus. But I have never heard a Peter Murphy song that hasn't, like, put me half to sleep. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, I just, I don't get it. Are, Rob, are you a big Peter Murphy fan? I like Peter Murphy stuff. I'm more of a Bauhaus fan. Mm, mm-hmm. I do think the energy is different. I like Peter Murphy. I just mostly like his voice. So he could sing mm-hmm. pretty much anything and I would enjoy listening to it. Yeah, he's got a great voice. And it's been probably years since I've heard a Peter Murphy song, but I just don't remember there being a lot of dynamics in the music and in his vocal performance. So it just kind of sounds really droney to me. Hmm. Um, that was kind of a whole subgenre 
in the early 90s that I just didn't connect with at all. But Nick Cave, actually, The Good Son, which I'm guessing it was released 91, 92, sometime around there. Are we talking um, about the Macaulay Culkin movie? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the soundtrack to to the the movie. No, okay. um, I wish that would have been an infinitely more interesting movie. Uh, yeah, the movie would have been so much better. <laughs> um, that was the album that made me love Nick Cave. That is one of my all time favorite albums. And now, Rob, you are a bigger Nick Cave Giant. fan than I am. Yeah. Absolutely. But that is the album where he really becomes more of a troubadour and is singing a lot more than like growling and yelping and, you know, howling and doing all of his other stuff. There's like pretty ballads on it. And I'm wondering, do you not connect to that part of Nick Cave, or do you like that part as well? No, no, I like that part as well. I don't think there's anything Nick Cave has ever done that I haven't enjoyed. He's even got stuff that he's done with Warren Ellis that's just instrumental stuff. And I'll fall over for all of it, pretty much. Yeah. He's a genius. So just a real quick recap on Nick Cave. On our show, we're in 1979, and we just talked about The Boys Next Door, the band that Nick Cave started out in that changed their name to The Birthday Party. Birthday Party, yeah. We have heard the very first thing that Nick Cave did. We're going to hear a lot of Birthday Party. Nick Cave releases quite a few albums of solo stuff before... 1987 right and man he just all the way through the 90s i mean he is releasing an album like every couple of years will has he showed up on the modern rock charts yet for you where you're you're at 92 i don't think he ever charts on the modern rock charts you're kidding me the same i think is true of tom waits for instance mm-hmm. uh, artists right. who are considered you know alternative generally speaking but for whatever reason yeah they they never chart wow that sounds wrong to me but what do i know <laughs> so what about sonic youth i mean sonic youth is a bit of a blind spot for me we of course will be talking about them later on into the 80s but Of all of the punk bands that start out in the early 80s, they're the ones that seem to kind of like most naturally transition into the early 90s grunge scene, right, Will? Yeah, I think so. Them and and Dinosaur Jr., uh, although Sonic Youth predates Dinosaur Jr. I forgot about Dinosaur Jr., yeah. Yeah, um, they do. They, they, you know, they start out as what was considered a no wave band. I think they're just making a lot of noise, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, they they did. They transitioned very well into grunge movement, and you know, picked up all of those those new grunge fans along the way. Yeah. So, Rob, you picked two bands to uh-huh. feature tonight. What is the yeah. first one? The first band is L Seven. It's an all-female band. They were formed in 1985 in Los Angeles, California. Their largest roster, their longest-standing roster, consisted of 
Susie Gardner, Danita Sparks, Jennifer Finch, and Dee Placus. There's a lot of wonderful shenanigans that, mm. <laughs> that comes out of this band. And to me, they have this like punk rock vibe and they never really let it go. But the band lasted from 1985 to 2001. They got back together in 2014, and I believe might still be playing. They've released seven studio albums over the time. Their first album was produced by Brett Gerwitz on Epitaph Records in 1988. And Trouser Press gave the album kind of a meh reception, saying that it was all brute force and speed and just kind of equated it to noise. But it just so happens to be that that's what it is I loved about that album. So I, mm -hmm. I certainly don't complain about that. Well, it was a real surprise to me that they started so early. I mean, I sort of associate them with the grunge slash Riot Girl movement. Uh-huh, right. And I just sort of thought that they were one of those bands that kind of just popped up in the early 90s. I was not aware that they were together as early as 85. 85, yeah. Yeah. Well, and they, yeah. they were definitely a big part of the grunge movement, uh, even down to, you know, signing on to, uh, oh gosh, Sub the name of the, Sub Pop, yeah, yeah. The, the big grunge label. And their fans definitely crossed over. In fact, this is one of those points where the band members kind of rubbed elbows with other grunge band members, you know. I think back in the 80s, I didn't originally consider them grunge. To me, they always felt punk until mm -hmm. grunge was a really big thing. And I'm like, wow, now they've got a place where they're a little more accepted. But I'm a, I'm a huge fan and I love the band. So the song that I pick comes off of their first album. And it's a tune called uh, Snake Handler. So when you're listening to this song, remember that this is a band whose lead singer got mad at a rowdy crowd and threw her used tampon into the crowd. I don't know if you remember hearing this, but she was so pissed off. She just threw it out there and was like, you know, screw you guys. Uh, but it's also the same band whose lead singer dropped her pants and underwear during a live performance on the UK TV show, The Word. That, of course, was uh, Danita Sparks. And I don't think I knew about that until recently. And I went and found the YouTube video and watched that performance. And it cracks me up every time because they, they just kept rolling. I mean, it was live. Mm, so mm -hmm, they just kept mm -hmm. going, but this is a rowdy, this is a rowdy band. <laughs> so this song, 1987 mm -hmm. sounded pretty grunge to me. <laughs> yeah, it does. It, it really, no, it really does. So their third album is an album called bricks are heavy. And that came out in 92. This is probably their most famous yeah, album. Yeah, I mean, sure. this is this is uh, an album that I am familiar with. It was uh, on Slash Records, produced by L7 and Butch Vig, who produced other bands like Smashing Pumpkins and Nirvana. And they had three singles. 
Pretend We're Dead, uh, Everglade, and Monster. This is also the first actual uh, L7 album that I owned. It's not something I ripped off. I actually bought this album. Will, you mentioned, did you cover Pretend We're Dead? Yeah, it's just last episode. <laughs> We're talking about a lot of bands that I literally just talked about. Nice. Well, I decided to go with a song called Monster, written by Susie Gardner. When I hear this song, there is really just one artist that pops to mind. <laughs> okay. Alice Cooper. This sounds yeah. like an Alice Cooper song. <laughs> I mean, they, well, who knows what's, you know, was in the brain of a, a different person. But my guess is that they went, let's write an Alice Cooper song because that's really what it feels like. <laughs> and I think they do a pretty good job. Yeah, I'd like to hear what Alice Cooper has to say about that, but maybe he'd like it. I Actually, he probably would like this song. So let's circle back to the Pixies. We're going to just kind of like sprinkle in some Pixie songs along the way. Will, let's talk about your choice for a Pixie song. Sure. So I chose a song off of Doolittle. I intended to choose something that was maybe a little less well-known. I had no idea that Hey was one of their top five songs on Spotify. But uh, yeah, we're going to listen to the song Hey. Well, the Pixies, they must show up a lot on the modern rock charts, or was that just kind of like the tail end? Of, well, no, yeah. no, it wasn't, was it? They show up a fair amount, but not as much as I would have expected. Uh-huh. We miss out on some of their early singles, so nothing from Surfer Rosa charted. Mm-hmm. But some of their singles that I would have expected to chart, like Alec Eiffel, for instance, mm-hmm. I don't think those charted at all. They are such a beloved band, and they seem like the epitome of college rock in so many ways. It's surprising that they weren't just ruling the charts with every single they put out. Hey's a great song, by the way. I love it. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. Part of the reason I picked Hey is because I feel like it contains so many elements that scream classic pixie sound to me. You know, it leads with that Kim Deal bass line. Uh, You've got like Black Francis vocals with kind of like the semi-mysterious Kim Deal background singing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you've got those like Joey Santiago guitar shriek sound. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, 
it's just like a high point of any Pixie song for me is when he's doing that Joey Santiago guitar thing. All right, so I guess this episode is featuring a lot more music than I normally feature on a regular episode. So to prevent it from going too long, I'm going to cut it in half. We're going to take a break right here, and uh, we'll come back next time with uh, the second part of this episode. 